2: Heart disease kills more women than cancer, diabetes, and stroke. It will claim the lives of one in three women, killing more than 400,000 each year. The good news is that a majority of these cases may be prevented through education and lifestyle changes. Joining us today to talk about the female heart and how we can change our genetic potential is Dr. Mark Menelacino author of the book Heart Solution for Women, a proven program to prevent and reverse heart disease. Dr. Mark is the medical director of the Menno Clinic Center for Functional Medicine. He is board certified as an internal medicine specialist, board certified in holistic medicine, and board certified in advanced hormone management and anti-aging medicine. Welcome, Dr. Mark. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: So, Dr. The rate of heart disease for women is an alarming statistic. Is this number on the rise?
1: It is, and really all heart disease, uh, it, it started to go down a little bit with all the new technology that we developed and the deaths from heart disease, but now it's starting to rise with the increase in diabetes and the increase in obesity and really all chronic illnesses increasing, including heart disease, particularly for women.
2: So do you believe the root cause then is what? lifestyle, um, lack of exercise? What do you believe is at at really (laughs) the heart of the issue?
1: That's a great point, John. And
2: in my book, I talk
1: about all the different things that really come together to sabotage a woman's health. Women are this beautiful symphony, and it's their hormones, their endocrine system, their digestion system, the way they fend off inflammation, and it changes during a woman's life. So it really depends on where you're at and what your particular challenges are. But we've really developed a society of less exercise, higher stress, less nutritious food, more toxins in our environment. There's just so much stacked up against us that it just makes it harder and harder to be healthy.
2: Dr. Mark, do men and women present heart issues differently? Well, think, Joan.
1: Do you ever remember seeing a movie of a woman clutching her t- chest and dropping to the ground with a heart attack? No. No, but we see it with men. And the classic is the elephant standing on my chest, and that's how men tend to present For women, it can be much more subtle. It might feel like an anxious moment or even an anxiety attack. A lot of times it's nausea or digestive issues or heartburn. So it comes much differently and presents differently in women, and that's why it gets missed so much.
2: Well, what you just described, I mean, I know that those are things that I could experience at any moment of any day. So how can we tell the difference between something that might be benign and a serious condition?
1: Well, it's difficult and what I tell my clients is that if you think it's your heart, get checked out because you're never wrong if you're not having a problem. But if you are having a problem and don't get checked out, you might be dead wrong. The problem with heart disease is that the first symptom in half the people with heart disease is a sudden death heart attack. You don't get a second chance. That's why we talk about in the book all of the things you should be doing to protect yourself. and. Most doctors are not trained at this cutting-edge medicine of functional, personalized medicine to prevent a problem for you.
2: So, Doctor, my mom had heart disease. She had major heart surgery and then later on ended up passing away from complications of a stroke. i sorry. Um, for someone like me, what roles do genes play in whether or not it's passed on?
1: We, we were taught in medical school that genes are your destiny and that you have a fixed future to be who your parents were or your grandparents were. The beautiful news that is empowering is that your genetics are changeable. You change what your genetics express based on the choices you make. So your genes load the gun, your choices pull the trigger. So we now know that genes, this concept of epigenetics, you can turn on good genes with good choices, and you can turn on bad genes with bad choices. So you have the ability in your lifestyle choices to turn on the good genes or turn off the bad genes.
2: Dr. Mark, you had mentioned that female hormones have a role in heart disease. So what part do the adrenal and the thyroid glands have in heart health?
1: Well, Joan, I see it as this beautiful symphony. The thyroid and the adrenal have this intimate relationship we're just understanding. And there's millions of women that have thyroid problems that are not diagnosed because the ranges haven't been corrected at most labs. The TSH test, uh, if it's ever over 3.0... Look at your most recent lab test. You probably have a thyroid problem. And 40% of the women who are on thyroid medicine are inadequately treated. So even when we identify it, we don't personalize it enough. And it's that whole symphony. They all have to work together and be a supporting cast for a woman to feel her best and be protected against things like heart disease.
2: What can we do to support the adrenals and the thyroid that may not mean medication. I, I, for someone like me, I, I hate the thought of taking any type of meds. So are there things that we can be doing naturally that can support those systems in keeping our heart healthy?
1: Oh, Joan, you know, I get, this asked, I get asked this three or four times a day, and, and none of us like medications, but they do have a role when they're needed. So I'm an internist. I do use medications when needed, but we all want to know what we can do to avoid them. And it's really the lifestyle choices. The first thing is, what are you eating on a given day? can you make healthier choices with less carbohydrates less processed food less sugary food uh, more organic if you can find it and afford it so it's really looking at the food you do how about sleep that's one of the things you can control the most get rid of all the electronics in your room your bed is only for sleep you shouldn't be eating in there watching tv reading turn the phone off leave it on airplane mode ideally put it in a separate room when you go to bed so there are these sleep parts that you can do and sleep and clean food and clean water are probably the things you can control the most.
2: Now, doctor, this I found fascinating. You say that childhood trauma can be a big contributor to heart disease even decades later. So what types of trauma are we talking about?
1: Well, the uh, Center for Disease Control launched a large study uh, now 30 years ago looking at adverse childhood experiences. It's called the ACE score, A-C-E. You can, it's in the book, you can take it in the book or go online and find it. But it looks at the risk of health issues later in life based on the experiences you had as a child. There's a lot of trauma in our world and this trauma can lead to uh, behaviors, habits, and, and chemical patterns in the body that make you more prone to have disease later in life. From heart disease to liver disease to mood disorders. And it's something that I think everyone should look at. We look at it every single client that comes in.
2: So lately I've been on this new <laughs> I have this new concept where I decided that I want to stick around uh, a little bit longer. And That's I'm good. trying to figure out a way to get off the yo yo dieting roller coaster that I've been on for all these years. And and I wanna learn more about how my body type plays into what I should eat for you know, the best metabolism and for health. So what are the main body types in women and which ones put us at the greatest risk for heart disease?
1: Well, Joan, you're asking great questions. And, you know, the problem with diets so or the first three letters are die. Yes. So we don't believe in <laughs> diets. We believe in personalized nutrition plans. And so everybody's different, how you respond to certain foods and how you respond to other foods. And there is no magic diet that's out there. One of the things we look at is is in your body type, and there are clues that the body tells us about how you use nutrition. Do you have little bumps in the back of your arm? Is your tongue coated? What are your fingernails like? All that tells us about is the food even getting to its source when you eat it. But for women, we see especially kind of a pear-shaped body type versus an apple-type body shape. And the apple type tends to hold more of the body fat in the midsection. And, you know, none of us like too much outside body fat. But as the doctor who cares about you, it's the inside body fat, what I call the hot fat or the visceral inflammatory fat. That's what drives all disease. This issue of fatty livers is an epidemic that's happening in our society due to things like diabetes. But your body shape tells you right away, is it an insulin problem, blood sugar problem, inflammation problem, or is it more of a thyroid adrenal hormone problem? And so the apple is more of the inflammation, insulin, blood sugar issue. The pair is more of a hormonal issue. Then we have those other women who I like to call the skinny fat where Mm -hmm. they look lean, but that hot internal visceral fat is actually very, very high. In our office, we have a machine that checks your outer and your inner body fat to look for those sneaky people that are hiding that body fat because that's really the scary inflammatory fat that can lead to bad things for people.
2: And that would have been my mother because if you looked at her, she was very thin. And she had a very fast metabolism, we always said, but she ended up having heart disease. Well,
1: you know, you talked about, and I'm certified in anti-aging, but I don't really believe in anti-aging. I don't really want to live to 120, but I want to be 80 and ski with my kids Mm -hmm. and my grandkids. So it's really about this optimal vitality, this optimal aging. And that's really what I think we're all shooting for. So what can you tap into and what do you like to do? What are your passions? that we can align all of those because you make the choice every day with your fork. And it's really what you do, what you put in your body to really determine what are you going to be like at 85. Because, again, we can change the outcome of our genes based on our choices of stress management, sleep, and nutrition. It's a really exciting time.
2: Doctor, a few moments ago you mentioned that our body gives us subtle clues to whether or not there could be something going on with our heart. In addition to the type of body that we have, what are some other signs that we could look for that might be an indicator that it's time to see the doctor?
1: Well, the first time I met a Chinese practitioner, she looked at my fingernails for 10 minutes and told me all of these things that were true about my health. So I became fascinated in uh, Chinese acupuncture, Chinese nutrition, Ayurvedic and naturopathics because they look at the body. So in your fingernails, little white spots can mean a zinc deficiency, lines and ridges and striations can mean poor absorption in the digestive tract. We see um, scalloped tongue like a, a, a serrated steak knife on the side of the tongue that can be low thyroid. We see patches on the tongue which can be related to poor nutrient absorption or iron deficiency or a bright red tongue. We see what they call unflatteringly the buffalo hump or a large collection of fat on the back of the neck that can be insulin resistant. Little skin tags on the eyelids that can be high triglycerides, one of the cholesterols. We see little bumps on the back of the arm that can be fatty acid poor absorption or even food sensitivities. So you see a lot in the body even before we start asking or taking any lab tests. We can tell a lot about the body's health just by listening and by observing.
2: So it's a good practice for us to get in tune with our body, to even stand in front of a mirror and study it, and get to know what we look like on quote-unquote normally, and when there might be some subtle changes.
1: And in the book, we have different descriptions of how you can do a lot of this medicine yourself. Now, you have to be careful trying to become Dr. Google, but I'd ask everyone to empower themselves about their own health listen to shows like yours, Joan, and there's so much great information that's being provided. So when you go to see your doctor, you have an agenda and a plan and get what you need from your doctor.
2: Dr. Mark, we're hearing so much these days about the gut-brain connection. How does this connection factor into heart disease?
1: Well, you know, we call the gut the second brain and it might actually be the first brain. Serotonin is one of the mood chemicals and everybody thinks all of it is in your brain, 90% of it is in your gut. So a lot of the chemicals that your gut makes and uses are the same ones that your brain uses. And the vagus nerve is a nerve that runs through your entire body, talks to every single organ, and it starts in the brain. So there's a a chemical relationship, an immune and neurotransmitter relationship, and a direct physical nervous tissue link from the brain to the gut. And I think we're just learning how what happens to the gut happens to the brain. That's why things, you feel them in the pit of your stomach why events can be gut-wrenching. We have these colloquial terms that we've had throughout history that really have spoken of that relationship, and now science is really helping us describe. The beauty of it is when you're good to your gut, you're good to your brain.
2: So what should we be eating then on a daily basis to be good to our gut, brain, and heart?
1: Well, we all are talking about the probiotics, which are the little bacteria inside of us. What's fascinating, Joan, is that there's 10 times more bacterial cells in your body than human cells. Half of the DNA that's in your body, that's the genetic code, it's not yours. It's this bacterial balance in your gut. And so the probiotics are important, but the prebiotics, which are what the probiotics eat, are even more important. And You don't have to buy them at the health food store. They're in your food. It's the fiber that's in your food. It's the pickled vegetables, the kimchi, the sauerkraut, all those things that we're always told to eat that we don't know much about or don't like. But they do really, the food that you eat feeds that ecosystem. And uh, if you need an antibiotic, you need an antibiotic. But if you're doing everything else right, you protect that environment so you don't have the damage that the antibiotic can do on that system. It's crucial to your overall health. And we say in functional medicine, it all starts with the gut.
2: And so what are the things that we should be avoiding? What is your philosophy on eating grains, dairy, sugar, processed foods?
1: Well, the easy answer to that list is the processed food. The less, the better. We just It's its abysmal what we're providing for our kids in schools and what most of us tend to be eating, the fast food, the high fructose corn syrup, the processed food. So really trying to eat clean food. And one great source is the Environmental Working Group, EWG.org. talks about the clean 15 and the dirty dozen. It's a great place to start to look at clean food. It's really the berries, the dairies, and the meats. That's where most of your toxins are because they're not protected. And so really trying to figure out what is best for you and eating a whole balanced diet. And the Mediterranean diet, if you were to challenge me, I'd say probably is the best. So not all grains are bad and not all grains are bad for all people. The healthy whole grains tend to be okay for some, but for some they just don't seem to be good. So it's really developing a panel for you, and there's actually a food sensitivity test we do here in our office that can personalize what foods your body does well with versus what foods cause it to fire off inflammation.
2: Doctor, if someone thinks they have a problem with their heart, what types of tests should be done in order to make a diagnosis?
1: Well, thank you for asking, Joan. because in medical school, we're taught about the basic cholesterol panel, and you look at the good part and the bad part, and you make a decision based on a risk score. Well, I think that's so not personalized, and it's so 1975. What we now have is a technology to break apart the cholesterol into the very small inflammatory particles, and so there's good parts and bad parts of cholesterol, and even if your cholesterol is high, if it's full of the good parts, your risk is not the same as if it's the same high number but full of the bad parts. So we call it a fractionation or a cholesterol fractionated test where it breaks up the cholesterol into the smallest, stickiest parts. And those people with those need to be more aggressive at lowering it. And some people will need medications. But to decide who does, for men we do a calcium score, and for women we do a a carotid intima media thickness. That's a fancy word for an ultrasound of the neck that looks at the, the lining level. So to really personalize your risk, and we can find the canaries in the coal mine. The people who are at risk for having a heart attack can be identified by these blood tests and by these imaging tests. And if you do a stress test, you have to do the right kind, stress ultrasound for women and stress nuclear study for men. So we don't like to radiate women's chests because we're worried about the risk of radiation, so we use ultrasound whenever we can. So the, the testing is out there. Your doctor may not, not even have heard about it. If you look at the book, it describes all the tests that you need and how to do a one, two, three, perfect view so that you're never at risk. And it's not expensive. It's something everybody can do and ask their doctor. But your doctor may not know it, so you could teach them about it.
2: Doctor, for someone who may not have taken the best care of him or herself over the years, and there's damage, once the damage is found or or the abuse on the body has been revealed, is it ever too late to repair the problem?
1: Oh, that's such a great question. I, I don't think it's ever too late. What we find is even people who smoke after they quit 10 years after they quit, their cancer risk is the same as someone who never smoked. So the data shows that you do get kind of a second chance. And I would just encourage everybody, start now and make one change. Maybe you take a walk with your spouse, your child, your dog after dinner. Make that the one thing you do and just do 10 minutes. Don't feel like you have to climb a mountain and start all over and, and do everything perfect. Find something that you like to do, that you want to do, and add that one at a time. And what you'll find is after you do one thing, You'll start doing more. You'll park at the end of the parking lot. You'll take the stairs at work. You'll do a couple laps around the um, outside lanes of the grocery store before you shop. You'll just do a little bit more. And 1 plus 1 equals 10. That's the beauty of all these lifestyle choices.
3: The book
2: is Heart Solution for Women, a Proven Program to Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. If you would like to get more information about Dr. Mark and his work, you can visit themenoclinic.com doctor in our final moments what's the takeaway what would you like to leave our listeners with
1: well i don't think that there's enough love and support on our planet and for each other and the mediterranean diet its success may be that they ate as a family as a unit as a group share a meal with someone find people around you that have the same health motives and then do it with a partner do it with a family member do it with your pet uh, make it a social event because it's the social connections that keep us all together
2: Doctor, thank you so much for joining us and for providing information that can help us take back our power and be good to our heart. This information is truly life-saving, so thank you. Thank you, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
3: Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to primohealthsolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best.
2: It's time for Cheer Health. Joining us today to talk about social distancing and loneliness is Lori Gardner, a registered nurse, patient advocate, and board certified health and wellness coach. Lori assists people with all aspects of their health care. Welcome, Lori. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Joan, for having me today. Lori, we've been social distancing now for almost a year. What impact does this have on our physical health? What should we be concerned about? Well, Joan, first, I just want
4: to mention that, you know, the social distancing really, just to put a little bit of a framework on it, gives us an opportunity to be part of the solution to this pandemic. I just want to say that it's kind of a high level. But in terms of the social distancing and our health, it, it creates an incredible amount of loneliness for a lot of people. But even before the pandemic, Joan, loneliness was known as a health epidemic already. Many studies showed that the harmful effects of loneliness, especially in adults, Older adults um, can involve raising levels of their stress hormones, and that contributes to bodily inflammation. That then in turn can lead to heart disease, arthritis, type 2 diabetes, and dementia. So in older adults, loneliness was shown to impair their ability to perform activities of daily living, such as bathing, grooming, and preparing meals. So it really has a tremendous impact, and with social distancing and the pandemic, even more so uh, than before. Douglas Nemesek is a, a physician and chief medical officer of Cigna Behavioral Health, and he has a quote that says, loneliness has the same impact on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, making it even more dangerous than obesity. That, that just was astounding to me. But during this pandemic, many people have experienced an increase in physical ailments based on loneliness they have been experiencing. You know, it's important to note that the stress of the pandemic and social distancing also contribute to an increase of poor health habits. Not you or I would have increased any sugar intake, right? But Mm -hmm. yep, it happens, (laughs) you know, and lack of exercise, poor eating habits, less sleep, stress and work and that. So it really is a very, very difficult time.
2: Well, and you know, we we tend to think about loneliness in terms of emotional well-being, which we'll get to in a moment, but we really don't think about what happens to us on a physical level. So these are... Are very real concerns that we all need to start to pay attention to. But let's now shift to our emotional well-being. How does all of the time that we're spending by ourselves, how does that impact our thoughts and the way that we're feeling?
4: Yeah, really good question. And I'm such a proponent of that mind-body connection. So our thoughts have a direct relationship in our on our emotions and then therefore our physical status. And you know, as I previously mentioned, the social isol- isolation and loneliness, you know, they can increase the stress hormones and inflammation in the body. So if the body's physically challenged, Joan, that can lead to damaging emotions such as fear, anxiety, uncertainty, and depression, you know, just to name a few. In order to stay as emotionally healthy as possible during this time, I suggest you know several things, but just kind of getting a daily structure into your life. That's that's really important because you know you can wake up and focus on. The bad news, you can focus on the challenges, or you can wake up and have your structure. You know, And that's different for everybody. That's why we work with people and find out what works. But it could just be getting up at the same time every day and taking your pajamas off and getting dressed. I mean, these little things can make a big difference. And being intentional. How much will I listen to the news? What is my goal for today? It may be just a small goal, but that's Okay. You know, we also recommend looking at very small things to appreciate in the day and be grateful. You know, studies have shown, we've all heard, you know, gratitude and appreciation actually up your um, endorphins. It makes you feel just better. So it's more important, you know, that you focus on what you need to do rather than the external, the external stimuli. And, you know, also look at, you know, is their neighbor I could help? Sometimes helping others is a huge benefit to our emotional well-being. We always recommend focusing on deep breathing because under stress, anxiety, uncertainty, you can really kind of get that into somewhat of um, a little bit more control with some deep breathing exercise. It also minimizes, you know, some anxiety, Watch out what you are watching on, on social media and the news. Contain that so that it comes in small bits, just what you need, because that has a huge factor. You know, move your body as you, best you can during the day. Eat a good diet, drink water. These are all some really general tips for all um, well-being. But the physical does affect the mental. You know, Joan, that, that if we keep our bodies physically in pretty good shape, it's all connected. So we really... In my opinion, we have to do both.
2: So you just gave us some wonderful tips to help us with our emotional well-being. But let's get to the root of the problem, which is the fact that we are isolated. So what are some things that you believe we can do that will help us stay better connected?
4: You know, I feel strongly about this, Joan. This can be, for some people, including myself, this is an opportunity to go within, basically. So it's an opportunity to connect to yourself because if you connect to yourself, on a deeper level, which you get when you have, when you're, in this case, sometimes forced to be with yourself, and maybe don't really want to be, but it can be a time of incredible growth um, to be able to learn how to be alone with yourself and find out really what what fulfills you and how to how to make that part of your life. Some of the suggestions we look at is, um, in order to stay connected to self, is look at what feelings you're having and how deep they are. Are they so significant that it warrants professional help? Get it. Just get it. There's so many great opportunities on telemed, virtual, you know, professional help, that this might be the time to do it. Some people have a little more time on their hands these days, no commuting and so on and so forth. We very much um, promote that. But look at your family and personal connections. And are there any ways you can have a conversation or set up a system for yourself that keeps you connected, whether it's a phone call, a socially distanced walk in nature? That's another suggestion. You know, check around your neighborhood. You know, is there a neighbor that could use your help? You know, maybe they need a meal. Maybe they're sick, elderly. That can also take you out of yourself. And you may find your fulfillment in one of those things or an idea about it. But a lot of times we say just embrace the solitude, you know, as an opportunity to connect to yourself and find out quietly what next steps you might want. You might start building a whole new you. Um, but it, important, like I said before, is be aware of your physical and emotional health and how your daily habits and thoughts are affecting them. We do have control over our mind and our thoughts. You know, another couple things is just learn a new skill, take an online course, but also practicing mindfulness and meditation. There's always all ways to do it. But that really is the crux of how to get to within and do that deep dive.
2: Lori, thank you so much for joining us. As I said, we've been doing this for some time now, and you've really provided some great information that can help us continue to move forward and do what's required. So if you'd like to get more information about Lori and her work, you can visit healthlinkadvocates.com, or as always, to hear more from Lori, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Lori. We'll be right back. Do you believe that there can be a silver lining from tragedy and that blessings come in disguise? Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Your attitude determines how you view a situation and how you move through it. A tragedy is defined as an event causing great suffering, destruction, and distress. We understand the meaning of those words, however I believe the important component is how we view the situation. What may be a tragedy to one person is nothing more than a bump in the road to another. And while we can agree that events such as death, divorce, or job loss create less than desirable circumstances, each can be viewed and handled differently from one person to the next. The key is that person's outlook. There are people who see the glass half full in all situations, and others who see it as half empty. We have a choice about how we view what occurs in our life, and that choice determines how we will transition through a tragic experience. So how can you get through a tragedy? Recognize that you have a choice in the situation. We often believe that we are a victim of circumstance and that this will be our lot in life. We think that we will never recover. The key to moving on is to know that you have the power to change the situation. No matter how devastating the circumstance, you have the power to get through it. You are not a victim. The choice is yours. Never suppress your feelings. Hurt, sadness, and grief are all normal emotions, and they should be felt. The problem occurs when you allow yourself to stay stuck, when you assume the role of victim. Get help if you cannot do it by yourself. Read books and seek information that can help you get your head in the game. Reach out to friends and loved ones. Isolation can make the situation worse. And seek professional assistance if you're overwhelmed, depressed, or have suicidal thoughts. Remember, you're not alone and you have a choice. How we experience our life comes from how we view what we experience. As Dr. Wayne Dyer said, when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. Thanks for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com.
3: This is WNYA, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City.
2: Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. The pressures and activities of daily life can wreak havoc on a love relationship. Expressing emotion on a consistent basis can fall to the side, and the things that say I love you don't get said or don't get through. According to today's guest, Dr. Gary Chapman, each one of us has a primary love language, which when spoken, fills up our emotional love tank. And when we learn to speak a partner's primary love language, the love we share will be exciting beyond anything we have ever felt before. Dr. Chapman is here today to help us identify, understand, and learn how to speak a partner's primary love language. He is a speaker and counselor and the author of the Five Love Languages series. Welcome, Dr. Chapman. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Well, thank you, Joan. It's great to be with you.
2: Dr. Chapman, I'm I'm so happy that you're here because this is really such an important topic, especially in light of the current divorce rate statistics. And in the opening of your book, The Five Love Languages, you write about a question that I believe so many people want answered. And I believe they want this answered because many who are part of a failed relationship really did try. I mean, they gave it everything that they had. And when the relationship ended... They didn't really understand what went wrong. So I want to begin with that question. What happens to love after the wedding?
0: Well, I think, Joan, you know, we've studied the in-love phenomena, uh, where we are swept along with these powerful emotions. Uh, But the average lifespan of that high is two years, and we come down off the high. But many, many couples are not aware of that. I was not aware of that. Mm -hmm. So when I came down off the high, and my wife and I had been dating for two years before we got married, so I came down pretty soon after the honeymoon, and I, you know, our differences emerged, and we began arguing with each other, and before long, we didn't like each other. And I think this is what happens. People are not anticipating that they will come down off the high. They think if they have the real thing It's going to last forever, Mm -hmm. and the reality is when we come down off the high, we have to now learn how to intentionally love each other or what I call the love tank, the emotional love tank, will get empty, and when the love tank is empty and we begin arguing with each other and we say hurtful things, in a while, we don't even want to be with each other. So I think that's what happens in, in many, many marriages.
2: Doctor, is it enough for one person in the relationship to have his or her love tank be filled? You know, sometimes there are, are you have the one partner who reads these books and who wants to really make the relationship work, and the other person doesn't. So is that enough to make it last?
0: Well, one person cannot create a good marriage, but one person can greatly influence their spouse. Let's face it, we are influencing each other, either negatively or positively, almost every day, by the things we say and things we do. But because we so deeply need love, when you speak the love language of the other person and you do it consistently, you are beginning to get through to them that you genuinely love them. And there's something inside of them that responds to that, Uh, and they they tend to respond then to, to speak your language. Now, you're exactly right. Often... One person reads my book, and they they learn their love language, learn the spouse's love language. They try to speak it, and nothing happens. At least they don't see anything happening. And what I say is this. After you have spoken their language consistently every week for, say, two or three months, then you can start making requests of them. They may not automatically respond, but if you start saying to them at that juncture, Honey, could you... uh, Uh, you think you could uh, vacuum the floor for me this afternoon, there's a good chance they'll do it because they have been feeling love from you. Mm -hmm. And now Mm -hmm. you're giving them guidance as to what they could do if they choose to do. And many times they will respond to your request. So you can really teach the other person to speak your love language, even when they haven't read the book, have no idea what's going on, but you are influencing them by the power of love. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone will respond, Joan. You know, it's it's no question about it. There are some people, you can love them in their love language, but their wires are so crossed or they have such anger or hurt or depression or whatever uh, that they don't respond. But I do believe it's the most powerful thing you can do to influence your spouse. Speak their love language.
3: I want to
2: talk about these five love languages briefly. The first one, quality time. What does that mean?
0: It means giving your spouse your undivided attention. It's not simply being in the same room, you know, sitting on the couch watching television. Someone else says your attention. I'm talking about sitting on the couch, TV off, looking at each other, talking, interfacing, or taking a walk down the road and talking with each other. Or going out to eat, assuming that you talk to each other, which is mm-hmm. not always the case. Uh, but it's giving the person your undivided attention. Really, it doesn't always have to involve conversation. It can be uh, planting a flower garden together or some other activity. But the important thing about the activity is not the activity. It's that we are doing this together. So it's really focusing your attention on each other.
2: So, Doctor, the next one, words of affirmation, that's when someone needs to hear verbal compliments in order to feel loved.
0: Yes. You look nice in that outfit, really appreciate what you did. You know one of the things I like about you are just the words, I love you, Mm -hmm. you know, spoken sincerely. Uh, And for some people, words are powerful. In fact, there's an ancient Hebrew proverb that says life and death is in the power of the tongue. We can kill each other, or we can give each other life by the way we talk to each other. So yes, for some people, if they don't receive affirming words, they don't feel loved. You can give them gifts and other things, but those are meaningless to them. What they're looking for is verbal affirmation.
2: Okay, so Doctor, you just mentioned the next one, and that's gifts. What does that encompass?
0: It's actually giving gifts to the person. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's universal to give gifts as an expression of love. We have never discovered a culture where gift-giving is not an expression of love. It's universal. The gift says, they were thinking about me. Look what they got for me. And it doesn't have to be expensive. You know, you don't have to have money to give gifts. You can get a free flower in your backyard. But, you know, it's a matter of thinking about the person and what they might like Mm -hmm. and then choosing to get that, whether you purchase it or whether you find it as you're walking on a trail, Uh, but you give them something. As an expression, I was thinking about you when I was away.
2: Okay, Doctor, so the fourth language then acts of service.
0: Doing things for the other person that you know they would like for you to do. In a marriage, that is such things as cooking a meal. That's a huge act of service. Or washing dishes, vacuuming floors,
1: mm-hmm. walking
0: the dog, changing the baby's diaper. You know, anything that you know the other person would like. You know the old saying, Joan, actions speak louder than words. Right. It's true for these people. It's not true for everyone, but it's true for these people. If this is their love language, actions will speak louder than words.
2: And the final one, physical touch.
0: Physical touch. In a marriage relationship, that is such things as holding hands, kissing, embracing the whole sexual part of the marriage, arm around the shoulder, driving down the road, you put your hand on their leg, but physical touch. So it's a powerful language of love.
2: How do we know which is our language and how can we figure out what our partner responds to?
0: we can receive love in all five languages. That is, almost anyone would find these things to be meaningful. However, one of them typically stands out above the others. And here, here are three clues uh, for yourself or for someone else. Uh, observe their behavior. If they're always giving people pat on the back or high fives, then you may think and consider maybe that's their love language. If they're always giving gifts to people, then that may be their language. Or if they're always giving other people encouraging words, So observe their behavior and observe your own behavior. Secondly, what do they complain about most often? The complaint reveals the love language. Hmm. If a spouse says, for example, we just don't spend any time together. I feel like we're two ships passing in the night. Mm -hmm. They're telling you quality time is their language. Or if you go on a business trip and you come home and they say, you didn't bring me anything. They're telling you gift is their love language. Or or, or if they say, I don't think you would ever touch me if I didn't initiate it. They're telling you physical touch is their language. You see, we tend to get defensive if a spouse complains. Mm
5: -hmm. But really,
0: they're giving us valuable information. And then the third clue is what do they request most often? If they're saying periodically, can we take a walk after dinner? Or can we uh, go out to dinner? Or do you think we could get a weekend away? They're asking you for quality time. Or if you start to go on a business trip and they say, be sure and bring me a surprise. (laughs) They're telling you that gifts is their love language. If you put those three together, Joan, observe their behavior, what do they complain about, and Mm -hmm. what do they request? You can pretty well figure out a person's primary love language.
2: Okay, so Dr. Chapman, now we figure out the love language of our partner What can we expect to have happen? I think
0: what happens is when we make the conscious choice to try to speak the other person's language, we begin to communicate love in a way that touches them emotionally. And their emotional love tank begins to fill up. They begin to genuinely feel loved by you. And over a period of time, their behavior begins to change, typically. Because when a person is being loved, because they so desperately need love, They are drawn to the person who is loving them. So it's a powerful way of doing, and they say it's a meaningful way, of doing what you really may already be doing. You know, you, you probably are already speaking some of these languages, but if you're speaking your own language and not their language, they're not getting it emotionally. And the love languages helps you communicate love. Effectively.
2: The book is The Five Love Languages by Dr. Gary Chapman. We have only touched upon this subject, so if you would like to learn more, you can visit the website 5 and that's the number five. Dr. Chapman, thank you so much for being here. This information has saved so many relationships, and hopefully with our listeners having this knowledge will save even more. So I'm so happy that you were here today to help teach us how to create loving, lasting relationships.
0: Well, thank you, John. It was great to be with you.
2: We'll be right back. There are a
5: lot of business people who are relieved that 2020 is over. However, a lot more are saying... Now what? This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. And if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that social media is important and it's here to stay. Between Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, many businesses were able to stay alive in 2020 and some even thrive. However, a lot more businesses hopped onto social media with the hope that it would all work out. And it really didn't. Social media is like any marketing. You need to have a plan and know what you want to accomplish before you go out and post or buy advertising on social media. The most important decision you can make about social media is why are you there? Are you keeping your name recognition to current and potential customers? Are you showing your business in a good light? Or are you looking for new customers? All of these are individual choices for small business owners and they bring you to different conclusions. Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn are all important for small businesses, but they are definitely not the same. Choosing what to post, when to post, and how to post matter on each platform and can bring you followers, customers, or absolute silence. It depends on how you use it. So before you jump into 2021 and start dancing in a video, think about why you're there and what you want to accomplish. That will lead you into the right platforms for you and your business. If you need help with your social media for business, give us a call. You can check out our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. Simple social media.
3: Are you having trouble staying on track? Could you use some tips? Hi, I'm Jessica L. Conrad. I'm a certified life coach and a member of the ICF New Jersey. I help women at a crossroads in life find clarity and direction. I also work with women who are dealing with infertility and reproductive disorders. Now more than ever, it's important to plan for the future to create the life you want to live. Here are some tips to stay on track. Number one, get clear on your needs and wants for the months and years ahead. Two, be mindful of your self talk. Get rid of words like I can't or I should. Number three, let go of the old to let in the new, whether that's old stories or bad habits. Number four, don't strive for perfection. Number five, take action. Stop thinking and start doing. To learn more or to book a call, please visit my website at jessicalconrad.com or you can follow me on Facebook at Jessica L. Conrad Life Coach.
2: productive life but sometimes we just need a little help our coach on call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now joining me today is linda mitchell a certified transition coach reinvention expert and speaker who empowers people that are stuck overwhelmed or ready for change to release the struggle gain clarity and evolve to their highest purpose as they move through life's challenges and transitions linda is here today to discuss being versus doing the healing wisdom of winter Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me back, Joan. It's always great to be here. So, Linda, to say that 2020 has been a challenging year would truly be an understatement. So many of us are tired of the hardships that 2020 brought and we're anxious to get back to our normal lives. You say that there is a wisdom that comes from being versus doing. Tell us why it's important to remain focused on the wisdom when we all can't wait to start doing things again.
6: Well, yeah, our lives have been upended in some major ways this past year, and we are all hoping to get back to some normalcy, and that includes doing the things we love with the people we miss. But I do want to remind people that it's during our biggest challenges that we often experience the most profound transformations. And the good news, Joan, is that we're in the final waiting period, and we're in the season of winter. And in traditional Chinese medicine, winter is the time for going within, carving out quiet Intentional downtime, and you may think, oh, I've already had so much of that. But intentional downtime is really different from just biding time, anxiously waiting for something to change. The wisdom of winter is all about being in the stillness and the silence. It's about reflection and nourishing our souls. Now is a really good time to take some cues from nature. Winter is when the animals hibernate. The trees don't produce leaves or fruit. They rest. And in the silence, their roots soak up nourishment. This is a lesson we would be wise to follow. The season of winter honors the emotions of trust, fear, uncertainty, and wow, haven't we all seen that and been challenged in that way? We are tired. We need to find ways to remedy this and bring ourselves back into balance. And the way we do that is to give ourselves permission to slow down, rest, be, and rejuvenate just like nature.
2: Linda, as we're in the midst of winter where the weather turns cold for many, how do we manage the isolation without having an impact on our emotional well-being?
6: Mm, Yeah, well, since winter is about being and not doing, it's the perfect time to focus on what truly matters. It's in that stillness that we can create transformation by discerning what our priorities are as well as what we can let go of. So let's look at the holidays that just passed very different from all the past holiday seasons, right? They're normally a time of fun, but also a frenzy of obligations and activity that exhaust and deplete us. Maybe we finally learned over these past holidays that it's not just okay, but better in some ways to let some things go, to get rid of that overcrowded calendar of obligations. I know it made a big difference for me. So ask yourself, did having less to do actually feel better? Did having fewer obligations make the things you did enjoy feel even more special? How did it feel to tap into that stillness and just enjoy the small things without all the frenzy? What did
2: you notice? So as you just said, it's about taking the time to intentionally go within and to find the things that are truly important to us. So what advice can you offer then that can help us do that? What types of practices would bring us to that place of peace? Well, we need to fill our time with things that really feed our soul. Go within. Find what your spirit
6: wants you to know. Get in touch with your purpose and why you're here on the planet at this time. Learn to be in the stillness. Cultivate a meditation practice. Cozy around the fire. Enjoy your close-knit ties. Go inward. Whatever has fallen away, and I know it may be a lot, let that bring you clarity about what truly matters for you. If there's a loss, be with the grief find something you can do to honor your loss winter is a time for healing slowing down carving out time to do less and just be be truly present to those who are around you let peace flow in and let structure and busyness just kind of fall away for a bit of time each day get more sleep read books that nourish your soul take baths water is the element of winter So, for example, when you take a walk, walk without a specific route. Go a new way and see where it takes you. Notice the things that were drowned out by all the busyness and structure of life before. Be gentle with yourself and find ways to laugh every day and acknowledge that self-care isn't a luxury anymore. It's essential to your health and well-being. Make intentional downtime a priority. And that's not surfing the web or watching hours of TV intentional downtime is really something that allows the whole body and mind to truly relax, like a nap, a bath, a walk in the woods without the phone, meditation, massage, or anything that makes your whole body say, right? It's like medicine for the mind, body, and soul. So look at quiet time as a prescription for your soul and do it consistently for at least two or three weeks to really reap the benefits. So when you do go back to normalcy, Make sure the things that you choose to go back to are the things that really matter to you, the things that make you happy and that really feed your soul. So gift yourself some time to just be this winter and then witness the beauty and the wisdom that emerges.
2: Linda, thank you so much for being here and for sharing this wonderful advice to help us step into the new year on sound footing. If you would like to learn more about Linda and her work, you can visit livinginspiredcoaching.com. And as always, to hear more from Linda, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Linda.